So this is a conversation with Lina Munzer. She's a Beirut-based writer and translator who, like me, took part in the October and post-October protests in Lebanon. I wanted to catch up with her to talk about how she started preparing for the worst yet to come very early on. This anticipation of economic hardship, of violence, is a widespread phenomenon in Lebanon, but not a lot of people are able to express it so accurately like Lina does. I know I've struggled to do so. Lina experienced the ups and downs of the revolution. She wrote the moods and experiences and facts in her diaries as they were happening. And she has clearly deeply thought about what the past seven months in Lebanon have meant, and even the past few decades. We talked about Lebanon, about revolution as a quote-unquote feeling greater than love, which is also the title of a Lebanese film, and why many people actually miss the civil war, or rather are so tired of the present's uncertainty that the past certainties, however horrible, were easier to digest. And we even talked about the impact that the Italian Jewish writer and Holocaust survivor Primo Levi's writings have had on her. This is why I was really looking forward to having this chat with her, and I hope you also enjoy it. As usual, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at FireDeseTimes and on Instagram at TheFireDeseTimes. And if you like what I do, please consider supporting this project with only $1 a month on Patreon on BuyMeACoffee.com. And you can also do so directly on PayPal if you prefer. Patreon is for monthly, PayPal is for one-offs, and BuyMeACoffee.com has both options. Thank you for your time. So, my name is Lina Munzer, uh, and I'm a writer first and a translator second. Um, and yeah, that's it right now. Th- those are my two full-time jobs. Awesome. So we'll start talking about your essay, Letter from Beirut, mm-hmm. uh, From Revolution to Pandemic. It was published yeah. last month, so April 2020, uh, which is roughly half a year basically since the October Revolution started in Lebanon. Um, yes. You mentioned that early on in the uprising, uh, you started planning on how to phase out your reliance on uh, mood-stabilizing medication. And mm-hmm. you started phasing it out in early November. And obviously, I'll, I'll just let you talk about this. The thing that really caught my attention while I was reading this is how you were preparing in advance for the worst yet to come, in a sense. And this feeling of, you know, in here, like we're going to a state of collapse, which, you know, has was turned into a meme and we made jokes about it and everything. Mm-hmm. This kind mm-hmm. of this anticipation of violence, essentially, it's, it's very widespread. So can you talk a bit about that feeling and your experience with it, uh, well, essentially since October? Mm. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a thing, it, it's not a single feeling actually, because it's if I look back on it, it's something that happened in waves or in phases. So back in November, when I started phasing out the medication, I had this kind of very logical knowledge that Uh, you know, the economic crisis is coming. We were already feeling its effects. So, uh, and so, um, so I knew very logically, as did everybody, that we are heading into like, um, you know, an economic downturn and that things were going to be very difficult. So I made that choice very logically to start phasing out the medication because it was um, because it was quite expensive on the one hand, and I really did have this fear of um, that it was actually going to, you know, time suit. Like I wasn't mm-hmm. going to be able to find it anymore, and um, I didn't want to have to get off of it cold turkey. Um, and also at the same time, I was really, really high. I think all of us were so high um, off of the like off of the energy of the thawra. And so I felt like, okay, I can I can sort of face anything. And that included first getting off the medication and second also kind of, the, you know, the, the economic collapse, the economic crisis that was coming. So it was like, uh, you know, when they say like for, forearmed is forewarned, it really felt like, okay, we know what's coming and yes, it's going to be difficult, but, you know, revolution isn't easy. And uh, this, this kind of like sea change that we've been waiting for decades and decades to have happen in Lebanon, we know it's not going to be easy. We know they're not going to leave without a fight, but we're here and we're willing to fight. And, you know, it was very much that feeling, which mm. I'm sure and I know for a fact that you shared, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, and you know, and so I started phasing myself off of the medication, and um, you know, and then little by little, things started to get worse. I mean, that was you know, I find that kind of like the perfect word um, 
to describe what was happening. And it kind of crept up on me weirdly, even though I thought that I knew, um, I thought that I knew what I was uh, in for. And I mean, like, in for in terms of, you know, uh, both the side effects of phasing out the medication and uh, the economic crisis itself, not just the economic crisis, I think it was just the the way that the turn that the protests took um, when more and more people started leaving the streets. Yeah. Um, and there was a point like now I look back on it because, you know, on Twitter, I'm usually fairly sober in the sense of like, I I don't just say whatever it is that I'm feeling. But mm -hmm. after um, after one of the protests, I had like a complete freak out <laughs> on Twitter and I was just so incredibly angry. It was when we were blocking the roads like before the parliament session where they yeah, voted yeah. in the government. Yeah. And it was such, I actually wrote about that day in detail in my journal and it was just such an awful day. Um, I remember just like bone cracking cold, waking up like at just before dawn, going down to the streets. And, you know, I always, I look around me at the people and I'm always so moved by their incredible dedication because you really do see people from all walks of life, people of all ages, and everybody is standing there together. And it just, that day was so, it also felt so incredibly futile. And, you know, these people would pass by as we were standing there and they would honk their horns. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I mean, this is something that always happens, right? That people, when they drive by and there's a protest, they honk their horns. And it used to be something that felt like really exciting. Like a, it was an act of solidarity. It's like, okay, they're in their cars. We're standing on the street, but like all of us are in this fight together. And I remember that day just feeling like so angry. It's like, don't honk your horn. Either get the fuck out of the car, you know? or just don't honk your horn, it, you know, and it wasn't necessarily logical, but I was just feeling this incredible sense of resentment that I think was just coming from exhaustion, yeah. like on my behalf, on everybody else's behalf. And it just, I think that day for me marked a kind of turning point because it really felt like, you know, the turnout was really not bad considering the circumstances mm -hmm. and considering like the, how late it was in the protest but i think the fact that they that they kind of pushed through regardless and they had the session and they voted in the government despite the fact that they didn't have a quorum um you know yeah, yeah. um if i look back it's all of these different phases like different things were happening at the same time and it was hard for me actually to connect the two things to say like, well, what I'm feeling now is is like a kind of um, side effect of, let's say, a withdrawal off of like, you know, psychiatric medication, um, because it really was. I mean, I have a, you know, like a bipolar, rapid cycle bipolar disorder. And it was for me, the thought was exactly that it was like the high was like this complete manic phase. And then the low was just this terrible depression and you know so it was in a way it was mirroring uh you know the whole and the whole country was living on on this like up up down roller coaster um so how do you disentangle like the workings of your own mind from what's like happening outside yourself as well um so i mean yeah, yeah that's that's where all of that came from and i think everybody was feeling this you know there was throughout this just sense of collectivity and it was like that collective feeling is what allowed me to feel like so ecstatic so connected to everybody and i also felt like that was why the economic collapse or you know collapse it's like this slow kind of tadahur mm -hmm. um it felt so so painful because because it felt like all of us had connected together and kind of acknowledged the fact that we were all connected together. And so now everybody having to suffer and you having to watch everybody suffer, it just felt so much more painful and so much more um, awful, if that makes sense, you know? Um, yes, absolutely. And so I was also there on that day and I was uh, at the top uh, next to Stalko, next to the on top of the bridge, and mm -hmm. I just him. So 
a bit of context for the for other listeners there was uh, parliament was supposed to meet and parliament did essentially meet and they they uh, ended up voting on these sets of laws and despite as you said not having quorum but on the on the psychological side in a sense my, my the reason why when when i read that sentence that you were kind of planning ahead uh that for me kind of really it it really struck me in a sense because i was um seeing a therapist up until october and then i mm-hmm. told the therapist i'm going to stop for some time because i'm doing fine right now and it was really the high of the of the of the protest which you, you like you described it beautifully it's really it it was really it, it was really a high like i was um the energy i was feeling was not just mine i was actually kind of taking energy from people around me and giving some of it back and it was really a collective thing and mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. day i guess i don't know p- personally for me when i started feeling that it was kind of like on the downturn maybe that day was actually when things started feeling for me as well but you like so there's this a sentence that you wrote in the essay i'm going to read it now everything had fallen apart by then though from my mind to the country to the thorough revolution and so it was hard to identify the source of the disease was it coming from inside my rotten brain or from the rotten world and you know that's what you mentioned uh, do mm-hmm. you have the diary entry of that specific day in front of you? The diary entry of that specific day. Let me January see. January 12th. So I said, uh, the first thing I did when I started to take the news seriously was to start weaning myself off of my cray pills. That was back in mid-November. Honestly, I'd been looking for any sort of excuse. I hate paying for them. I hate having to remember to take them. I hate the idea of them. I hate forgetting to take them and then only realizing it the next morning when I wonder why I feel so groggy and dizzy and like my head is stuffed full of shit clumped hay. Um, I think they helped in the beginning, but at this point, so I started to taper off the dose, taking off 50 milligrams at a time the way they said to do it on the internet. When I got to the last 50, I tried doing 25 milligrams a day cutting the 50 pill in what approximated half, but then I tired of this very quickly. So here I am, off the Lamiktal since late December, I think, and my head is still groggy and thick and sludgy. I think I don't know how to write anymore. I know I've said this at many points in my life, but now it feels real. I feel stupid, straight up dumb, bad diction, bad thoughts, ugly perspective on everything. Not that optimism is any stand-in for intelligence. Uh, But not enough imagination to think my way out of depression, let alone out of bed. Uh, in the morning and reading it now a few months later uh, mm-hmm. how do you see how do you see the situation changing oh this is uh, it's funny it's like such a simple question but it also feels like such a big question yeah. um, uh, I don't even know how to answer it because how is it changing I mean like depression is a very um it's, it's a very up and down thing, even if it's not like straight up bipolar, you know, even if a person is not straight up bipolar, uh, it, depression itself is like, uh, you know, it's like you're constantly riding a roller coaster, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're going up and down and, and trying to figure out how, how to navigate like your own mind. Um, and uh, it's frankly, it's fucking exhausting. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I mean, just the way that it's changed is I think if I look back on that time and I look at these, um, like I look at all of these entries, it's actually the only way that I can describe it is, um, is almost like a, it's a visual thing. Like the, it's almost like the light has been leached out of those memories. Like I look Mm. back and I see something that's like very, very, very dark. And part of it is like the January cold and it gets dark early. And, you know, I've always had this, um, the way I describe it to myself is sort of like, I don't know, I don't know where like the boundaries of my skin are, like where the boundary exists between myself and the world. Um, So everything sort of leaches in, whether it's like the landscape or the colors or the weather or this, or like they just sort of inhabit my mental state and they feed off of each other, you know? Um, And so when I look back on that, it's like a mix of all of those things. There's something that feels very sludgy, very dark, um, you know, um, very cold, like this inability to move my, I feel like my entire body hurts. Um, it's different now because, um, uh, because the whole world is different now. Like if you want like the entire 
collective mood now also uh, feels very different. Like now I have more of a sense of claustrophobia. Mm. Back then it wasn't, it wasn't so much claustrophobia as much as it was just like a complete lack of energy, like a complete lack of energy. It's, you know, it's hard to explain exhaustion. And it's funny because like reading these words back now, they're just words somehow, Yeah, you know, um, like I, I can't, and this has always been the issue. And I think this is the issue for everybody as well, is that you can tap into the theoretical experience of a thing. You're like, oh, I know what that feels like. You know, mm-hmm. uh, somebody tells you what pain is. You're like, oh, I know what that feels like. I know what it's like to have a headache. But you actually don't, you know, like something as simple as having a headache. You you actually, you you know, theoretically what it is. But until you have a headache, you forget how completely on all consuming it is and how it is a thing that you actually, it's not that you can't stop thinking about it, it's that it inhabits you every moment. So you're like getting a glass of water, your head is pounding, you're trying to lie down, your head is pounding, you're trying to think of something else, your head, you know? Mm -hmm. So when you read about, I have a headache, you're like, oh yeah, I know what a headache is like, but you know what I'm trying to say, right? Like it's, 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 you forget the visceral experience of a thing. And I think depression is very much like that as well, you know? Like one way I've been trying to, I'm I'm trying to write this piece and it's it's gotten nowhere yet. But one way that I'm trying to visualize this because I also I I kind of visualize everything. Like my memory, I feel is is very visual, and mm-hmm. I I see the experience of the of the revolution and especially, uh, yeah, the the first five weeks or so, five six weeks or so. Um, as almost like I had this out of body experience and the mm-hmm. body is mm-hmm. the is the collective body. So like I had an out of mm-hmm. body experience, but it wasn't even my body that I was exiting in a sense. And mm-hmm. coming back into it, it really does feel like, as you said now, it's like the emotions that I felt just a few months ago, like those weren't mine. Like there was some like, like I was part of them, like there, I had uh, I was definitely contributing to them. I was part of the anger, the anxiety, the the joy, the the even like the the increased adrenaline when we we had to run and you know all all of those things. I was definitely part of it. I have this visual evidence that I was part of it. I filmed everything, <laughs> and you know I was live tweeting it, so I know that I was there. But it does feel like there there is this disconnect. Like now I'm sitting in my room. I'm I'm not even in Lebanon. I'm in Switzerland uh, do it for my studies. As it happened, uh, two weeks after I landed, uh, pandemic hits. And, oh, my God. Uh, yeah, so like basically I came here and I'm, I'm sitting in the, the aftermath of the, the initial phase of the revolution. Let's call it that. And I'm, I've been kind of just ruminating over them. And I don't even have this direct connection because I'm not in Lebanon now. I don't even have the, the visual uh, mm-hmm. experience, if you want, of seeing the the currency depreciating like i'm seeing the photos i'm seeing like nido is at eighty thousand, and my friends are obviously there and they're telling me and it's and and i can sense it obviously i know it's bad i'm I'm not that disconnected but it's obviously mm-hmm. not the same and mm-hmm. weirdly enough it kind of takes me to the next question it's very although it's a very different context the sense of wanting to um of trying to build something from within so indoors because i'm, I'm in this uh, flat with my partner and we've been here for a few months now and we are trying to build something indoors that is um sort of a safe space to a certain extent and mm-hmm. you you wrote in your essay that one thing that you actually missed quote unquote missed uh, from the civil war mm-hmm. era is the mm-hmm. this sense of building an internal world that can protect you to, for, to a certain extent from the exterior mm-hmm. world and the difficulty mm-hmm. with uh, a situation like a pandemic and I guess even the economic crisis to add to it is that it I, I don't know that have you managed let, let me ask it this way have you managed to actually create a sort of inner space to a certain extent despite what's happening outdoors 
So it's interesting. So now earlier, like the the question that you asked me earlier is like now when you read these words, how do you reflect on them? Mm-hmm. I, I was actually stumped and I, st- I don't think I, I still can't answer like my relationship to the diary. But this in particular, actually, I can answer it the way that you asked the question before, because the you know what I had written there now as time progresses you know, like the feelings become sharper and they come more into relief. And you're like, oh, that's that's actually what I was feeling. So I have I you know, I have the sense that so I was like born and raised uh, into into the Civil War. And, you know, at the at the beginning of my life, it was like the reality that I knew you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, so obviously, you know, I read about this in the essay and this is something that I always come back to. In fact, is that, so when I long for childhood, I'm always longing for the war. Um, but I also realized now, like, as we get used to quote unquote, the situation with the pandemic is that there's also this feeling that whenever disaster strikes, okay, whenever there is like some sort of big disaster and i'm talking about like a collective disaster you know whether it's like the 2006 war or it's like you know bisirfi in fijar there's like an you know a car bomb or all of the different upheavals right that we've lived through here every time it happens and like everybody is sort of like in tune with one another and we're like oh shit the disaster is here mm-hmm. i feel this incredible sense of relief i can't even tell you like it's like you know that expression of like i i literally feel that like i feel like my entire body relaxing even even if i'm panicking on some level right yeah i feel so relaxed because it feels like i realize that i've been waiting for the disaster the entire time and now that it's here it's here and خلص, like okay that's it i don't have to anticipate it anymore it's here yeah so I realized that I've, I'm like, I live my life here consistently and constantly poised on the edge of like, you know, of anticipating disaster, of anticipating this like kind of collective upheaval um, that is going to take place and that all of us are going to have to like scurry back indoors and halna and, you know, make ourselves really small and go back into these squirrel nests and like, you know, make your life in this tiny place and and it really is, I mean, ultimately, it's like, it's almost like, uh, what's the word in English? Like, um, um, forgives you or, yeah, or, yeah. or forgives it, you? It's, it's not, it's it not quite you, right. Like, it gives you um, permission to, to, uh, I don't know. Yes, it's like, exactly. It gives you permission. It's like, uh, you know, um, exempts you from uh, exempts exactly that is exactly <laughs> i was like what is it what you know when you can't go to the military you can't yeah, do yeah, your exempt, military exempt, service yeah, yeah. It's perfect yeah it like it exempts you from uh you know like just surviving is enough you know what i mean like yeah. that's it it's like you got to the end of the day you're intact you're healthy you're fine that's it you you've done exactly what you're supposed to do yeah. and you know this we can call this like a successful day because yeah. you came to the end of it still breathing, still fine, and everything is good. It's like a sort of, um, it's like a relief from uh, the everyday drudgery of living on the one hand. Uh, like in the beginning, I'm saying now that it's dragged on, it's like a different feeling. But yeah. it's, when, the, when the disaster first hits, it's like all of a sudden I feel like there's like a membrane that has been pulled back and I'm like pressed up against the skin of like the real world, like the one that has been there all along, which is Mm -hmm. the world of the disaster or of stress or, you know, and then it feels like everything else that we've been doing, which is like the sort of the everyday business of living our lives. You go to work, you do this, you do that, you, you know, you chit chat with your friends. Like all of that was just like a veneer on whatever this is which is which is this is real life like oh i know that this is real life and this is what i've been waiting for the entire time you know um and like and then sort of the normal conception of time just stops and and it's always this feeling of incredible relief um and then i feel like that I can retreat into myself the way that I've always wanted to retreat into myself, which is uh, with 
complete abandon and I don't feel responsible toward anything or anyone outside my own mind, you know? Yeah. You sort of regress into this place. Obviously now I'm feeling very differently, but <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's definitely how I was feeling when I wrote that piece, you know? Yeah, no, uh, and I understand this uh, fairly well. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do. I'm sure. I mean, because like, you know, we're not we're not like contemporaries in terms of like the, you know, where like the age, uh, like our ages. And so the phases that we grew up, but I think that largely the um, the experience of living and growing up in this country is there is something that is quite, you know, that we we sort of understand. Yeah each other and we understand these things um very well <laughs> i've i've uh one of the things i'm trying like one so one of the purposes of doing this in a sense is kind of like a uh, uh trying to figure out if other people feel like me so i don't feel like i'm crazy and <laughs> <laughs> i've had conversations with um andrew arsan who's who's a lebanese scholar at uh, cambridge and he has this book called lebanon a country in fragments uh, I've had a conversation with uh, Fadi Bardawil, who's also a Lebanese academic. Yeah, that, I listened to that. It was excellent. Yeah. Uh, thanks. <laughs> so in, <laughs> in that one, he he is basically talking about people who really grew up like in the post, like in the 40s and the 50s, in the post-Nakba-ish era. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of came to age in the 60s and that was their whole world. And... He was reading this as someone who uh, grew up, uh, who really experienced the, the civil war and who is now, who, and so he was talking to me as someone who really experienced the quote-unquote post-war era. Mm -hmm. And it was just incredible, like the echoes, like obviously not everything is the same, you know, things change, but there are these com commonalities, these common themes that seem to be repeating themselves to certain extents. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, like it can, depending on my um you know mood or or <laughs> state of mind it this can this realization can be very depressing mm -hmm. and on the other hand the realization can be a bit of like a um light bulb moment i don't actually know what the light bulb refers to so i don't actually know what it, what the answer is so to speak but it's just kind <laughs> of like it's like okay well th this makes sense so like at this point in my thinking or at this point in what i'm trying to get at trying to understand the past uh, whatever years in Lebanon, my, my, my research is, it's more or less the post-war era. So my mm -hmm. life is, I keep on describing saying like my PhD is about me. So I'm just trying to understand myself. <laughs> and, yeah, you know. that's, I think that's the most honest assessment of any sort of study that we undertake, in some <laughs> you know. Because it is, I mean, you know, mm -hmm, I, mm -hmm. I, Absolutely. I didn't get into this, um, I decided no one asked me to do this. I don't to this day. I'm not 100% sure why I, I ended up doing this, but it it's starting to to produce answers. Let's put it that way. Although the answers mm -hmm. are always kind of incomplete, mm -hmm. but um, I'll make a weird segue here. And I think people who've listened to some of the previous episodes probably learned by now that I'm very bad at segues. <laughs> but uh, I'm I'm very curious always like when people have certain relationship with books s specific books. So Salim mm -hmm. Haddad, uh, previous guest, his 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 book quote unquote is the Book of the Squire by Fernando Pessoa. Mm -hmm. In my case, I have a number of books by James Baldwin that I end up reading time and time again. Mm -hmm. You mentioned in your essay uh, one of the 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 stories, one of the books by by Primo Levi. Uh, mm -hmm. the, yeah, the last the book he wrote. Mm -hmm. The last book hero, the drowned and the saved, exactly. Yeah, I haven't actually read it myself yet. Uh, I have the collect the entire collection of Primo Levi just in front of me actually now while we're talking, but I haven't uh, got into it yet. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about why, like, why that book? Why did you feel uh, that it was relevant to kind of mention it in this essay that talks up in general about like revolution and pandemic in the context of Lebanon? Mm -hmm. So I read this book uh, like uh, the first time, like maybe uh, two, three years ago. So rereading it was not, uh, it wasn't like, oh, it's been ages since I've read it. I had like certain parts of it that were, you know, that I could still see in my mind's eye, but like only the outlines of them. And I mean, uh, so my entire life is, is sort of been like, I've always known that uh, I've always written and I've always known that I want to write and whatever. Uh, but like my entire life in some ways has also been, uh, 
I keep coming back to the question of not so much like what does it matter, but how do you balance the 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 urgency of writing or the desire to write, which which in many ways I experience as kind of a selfish thing. I don't, I don't think that selfish is the right word here, frankly, because it like it applies a kind of morality to it that yeah. I don't want to. Uh, but like it's a very private uh, interiority and it's a thing where you really are, you, you sort of are, um, it's like uh, I'm making a hand gesture that you can't see that like perfectly <laughs> encapsulates what I want to say right now. But like you, you're sort of going inward, right? In order, like you yeah. connect with everything else by going inward. Um, and, you know, but like we live in this world, like in the Arab world that is just consistently beset by crisis um, and by, by, by the kind of upheaval that you really feel, or at least I really feel, uh, the need to respond to constantly and the need to speak to, um, in some ways, even if my work is not, I, you know, I might be interested in exploring other things, but like, it's that, that kind of feeling of like, well, you know, how can this just happen? And I need to be able to speak to this for myself, like to kind of reconcile myself to this world where these absolutely terrible, horrible things keep happening. You know, like yesterday I was reading, the story about like the gunman who went into a maternity ward in Afghanistan, it's just, it's just, it's the kind of horror that defies, you know, imagination. And mm -hmm. so I always think about writers who, um, who lived terrible things or lived in terrible times and were able to, uh, you know, not just continue writing, but like to speak to, uh, uh, the times in which they lived, you know, in whether in direct or indirect ways. And so when I first picked up uh, The Drowned and the Saved and I started reading it, um, I, I don't even know how to describe the feeling. It was like, a, it was just astounding. I felt like I had been, you know, picked up and turned upside down and like shaken and then kind of put back in my place. But like it, now nothing was kind of in the same place that it had been before, you know? Um, and because you know if you want to talk about like the 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 absolute um experience of 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 you know the 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 kind of evil that human beings are capable of doing to one another you know it is it is the holocaust and you know primo levi survived the holocaust he survived auschwitz and lived to tell the tale and uh you know and and this, it, so the book is just a series of essays. So reflecting on a lot of different issues um, having to do with his experience of the Holocaust and also of writing about um, having lived that. I mean, what I love about this book and is just, he never deals in broad categories, right? He is incredibly precise, incredibly precise, like even at the expense of his own pain, you know? What I mean by he doesn't deal in broad categories is like in many ways, um, you know, the story of the Holocaust, and I think maybe that's why it also like appeals to Americans so much, is like it, it is a story of like good and evil, right? Um, it's kind of the closest you can come, like Nazism and what the Germans did is like pure evil, you know, there is no, there's absolutely no justification, there is no sense of saying, you cannot come and say, well, uh, you know, they were colonized and, you know, then this happened to them. And, you know, like th the way that you might be able to justify sort of other atrocities, There's zero justification for what happened, you know, and the scale of the evil is just also so, so massive. And, you know, and yet like, so one of the essays, it's called the gray zone, you know, and, and he talks about the different relationships, um, of people like in the loggers, uh, in the camps, um, you know, like, and he sort of examines the, um, the image of like the good Nazi, but, and then also like the Jewish collaborator, quote unquote. And he, so he shows you like all of the, like the spectrum of human behavior that actually exists even within this sphere of like what you perceive as like the absolute evil, but he never absolves anybody of, uh, you know, of the bad that they did 
you know, that's not like it's, he doesn't provide any easy answers. He doesn't give you any opportunity to say, oh yes, that's the way things are. You walk away from every essay, like incredibly troubled, but it just in kind of the most transformative way. And he never lets you sit with any answer, um, you know, so that you can kind of feel good about having understood this. You are just consistently troubled, you know, um, as you should be, right? And then the final essay in the book also is one that I think is, is incredible. It's called Letters from Germans. And so he talks about like after uh, he published, um, you know, after he published his uh, book, his memoir of uh, surviving Auschwitz, um, which I think is called, it's got two titles. I think one of them is, if this be a man. Um, yeah, if this was a man. Yeah. And anyway, so he talks about like how all of the letters that he received from Germans um, after the, the, the book was published. And, um, and so, and also like the, so there were a couple of people with whom he had long correspondences um, and other people that, uh, that just wrote him one-off letters. And I think he responded to, to quite a few people. So he talks about the correspondence that he had. And of course, there were all kinds of Germans that wrote to him, uh, essentially, you know, to borrow like a very modern term who are kind of like virtue signaling, you know, like this is, you know, so terrible what happened. And, you know, we didn't know, uh, you know, we didn't know what was happening. And um, um, sorry, I just actually I want to go back and just say one thing is like, he also talks about the experience of having had that book translated into German, right? So before the Germans start writing to him is like, well, what does it mean for him to have this book translated into German? He wrote it in Italian, but like now it's being translated for the people that he didn't know that he was writing it for, you know? It, so it's not like he was writing it as a polemic, uh, you know, unto the German people, but now that it was going to be translated. So he was very afraid um, that any, that that anything would be lost in translation, you know, but he ended up having, um, you know, an excellent translator who was, um, you know, a dissenter and who had left Germany and refused to even live in Germany during the um, uh, during the Holocaust, uh, during the World War Two. Anyway, so just the reading that essay as well and seeing all of his mixed feelings around this and seeing the way that he uh, does have this long correspondence uh, with especially like one of his German interlocutors. Her name is Hetty, I think. Um, mm. And again, he never absolves anyone. He never gives you easy answers. It's not, it's, it, you know, it's not this happy ending of like, you know, despite the fact that she was German, you know, and I was a Jewish survivor of the Holocaust that we were able to meet in the middle and celebrate our humanity. Like that's such a facile, uh, you know, he doesn't even go there. You know, that's not even what he's trying to write about or talk about. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like it's, I'm, I'm, throwing all these words at you like it's kind of a heap of words and like absolutely not uh able to to qualify like why this book is just such a sublime thing and so for me it was like okay you know should the halik like if you are feeling depressed uh you know because right now you're about to go through this um this terrible thing, this economic crisis, this, uh, you know, that everybody is losing their livelihoods. There's uh, this incredible injustice, um, the violence, the state violence that is happening, you know, you, you need to be able to, uh, look at how, uh, somebody dealt with the absolute worst atrocity and, um, and was able to write about it in this just, you know, I don't have the word, it's not even illuminating, um, you know, and it's like, and he paid, I feel like he paid a very high price for it. Um, you know, it was the last book that he wrote before he committed suicide. Um, but, but he was able to illuminate things that, I mean, it's just, you know, and he wasn't writing theoretically, he lived this, like he lived this evil, this happened to him and to his body and to everybody surrounding him. And yet he was, he's able to offer up like, 
such a vast understanding of everything that he went through, you know, um, and what it meant to talk about it and what it meant to have it translated. And, you know, I could talk about it forever. So, no, <laughs> I mean, that, honestly, the, there is, I mean, when I asked the, the question, I wasn't expecting a specific answer. And the way you answered it, I feel, is the best representation of, of, of that answer. <laughs> it's how, uh, <laughs> This is, I, I can, I have, as I said, I haven't read the drown in this year. I've read, uh, say, Question and I've read, uh, If This Was a Man. Mm-hmm, and yes, mm-hmm. th- there is something that there are certain authors that there's something about them that separates them from others. Uh, probably that's like a topic for a conversation in itself. That's, that is how I feel about James Bolton. That's definitely how, uh, Salim Haddad, from what he told me, felt about, uh, towards uh, Fernando Pessoa. Mm-hmm. Uh, since actually our talk with him, I ended up finishing the book of Disquiet, which I started just before uh, having the conversation. And I definitely see where he's coming from. And it's one of those books that you just will rev- like you would revisit from time to time because it's not really meant to be read in one sitting anyway. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. There's no timeline. It doesn't. No, it, it isn't that kind of coherence. But. Um, Speaking of literature in general, you, you obviously you're a translator, you work in that world to various extents and you translate between English and Arabic. Can you um, can you talk a bit about you have two essays on LitHub. Uh, the second one is the, was, is the topic of the first part of this conversation. The first one is the, the one about you, you're, you're reflecting on what it, it's, it meant for you to be translating. Uh, Syrian women from Arabic into English and kind mm-hmm. of uh, living with um, with the words essentially living w- with those experiences. Can you, uh, for, if you can talk a bit about that and as a kind of squeeze in an extra question, like what is how would you describe your relationship with uh, these two main languages that you have, Arabic and English, and you know other languages as well? You can throw them in as well, obviously, but especially between Arabic and English. So the, the way I've always thought about it, you know, it's like, is that I, um, I feel in Arabic, but I think in English, mm. you know, um, and so, uh, which, which is interesting because I realized, um, uh, how can I put this? It's funny. Cause now I'm thinking, I'm like, I actually have a diary entry about this. <laughs> I wrote about it um, when I was like during that phase when I was just thinking aloud, you know, I, I, and I was working on that journal really. I mean, I keep journals off and on, but it was just because I felt so unable to do anything else. Um, but anyway, so, um, so my, the, the more that I, I, I kind of, um, it's not even think about it. It's like, you know, as I move forward in my life and my experiences, um, I realized that the, the, the visceral experience of the thing happens in Arabic, but I can't, you know, express myself in writing in Arabic, uh, well enough to be able to write about it in that, in that language. So mm-hmm. essentially all of my experience of writing is like an act of translation. So every time I'm writing anything, I'm aware or even not aware, but like, you know, th- that I am translating, um, this experience from the language in which I lived it and the language in which I feel it most strongly, uh, into the language that, um, that I, I think in, right. So it's the language in which I dissect things. I have a kind of more sober minded, um, and, um, quote unquote objective take Mm -hmm. on things, um, which isn't, it's not so much that it's objective as much as it feels divorced enough from the experience that um that i can i can look at it with a kind of um, dispassionate or not as uh passionate let's say um outlook you know but by that same token i also feel like uh it's almost like when i'm writing in english what i'm writing somehow feels fake to me um, I don't know how to, how to express it, but it's, it's almost like, um, is it because the audience wouldn't be the same? Yes, absolutely. I'm actually looking for this thing. I'm like, I, I wrote it. Like, I think I wrote it. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. So here I was talking about like, uh, a me, the, one of the meetings I had in like the, the revolution group 
when we were planning to the for the the night before because it's so it starts tomorrow we must wake at six to ready ourselves and be down by the monroe hotel at 7 a.m to help form a human chain blah blah so i'm sort of describing that and describing the meeting and how they were talking about like um what to do with the phones and like uh you know uh to sort of like set it up so that you can remote erase your phone and stuff um so I said, I won't, so I talk about this and then I say, I won't be doing anything to my phone. There's nothing on it. Also, none of this feels real to me. It's hard to explain, but even in that room, hearing them talk like that about security measures and what to do about your phone, etc., it felt like little boy war games, even though I know it's real. It just feels like it couldn't possibly happen to me, maybe because I'm not real. I'm not sure how I know even how to articulate this, though after typing the words, it just feels like I took my hands off the keyboard and sat there slack jawed for a few minutes because all I could think was it's not real in English. In English, it feels fake, like I'm just telling a story without real world stakes for someone else's benefit. Also a performance of sorts. And I had all these rapid fire thoughts one after the other, which I guess I've already written about in the first translation essay, but as a child, the war happened around me in Arabic and I escaped into English books. And in those English books, there was nothing ever remotely resembling the war the way I lived it. Because even if the books described hardship and difficulty or rather discomfort, et cetera, et cetera, these things were described and lived all in English, divorced from the entire sensual context of the war, part of which, a huge part of which was Arabic. The sound of the newscasters' voices and the words they used, hudna, fitna, ishtibakit, ma'arik, the sound of my father's voice raised in laughter or challenge as the adults dealt a new hand of cards and yelled giddily at one another throughout the match. How it shocks me now to think that they were younger than I am now, or at least my dad was my age, I think, not more. Just the sound of Arabic as meaning and as music, and music too, its rhythms and lyrics. I had a language for reality and a language for fantasy. And somehow now, as a result, nothing ever feels fully real anymore because I live things mostly in Arabic and then I process them in English. And when I process and write them in English like this, taking the words outside of my head and putting them on paper, forcément, sorry, this word works only in French, there is an English language reader there immediately, some anonymous person, but even so, because they are reading in English, they are indulging in a fantasy. They are headlong inside something not real. And so my own experience being written instantly also becomes not real. Not in the way that anything written becomes not real, i.e. hyper real, constructed, artfully rendered, structured in art, etc., but just simply unlived and unlivable, divorced from a body and therefore no longer belonging to it. I don't know if that makes sense or is even true. So that's it's, like... It's sort, it's sort of uh, out of body experience in a certain, to a certain extent as well. Yes, yes. I mean, it's it's exactly. Yeah, it's kind of an out of body experience in the sense of like not anchored in the body. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, uh, I don't know how to end conversations. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this has been really, really interesting. Honestly, I um, will definitely would have you on again if that's okay with you. To, I love talking. Uh, I feel like we've had a conversation if before. I don't know how to explain it, but it's like, like, oh yeah, hi, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it just is, feels is, very natural and and easy, is what I'm saying, you know. I'm glad to hear that. That's it's one of the things that uh, I'm trying to explore because, especially for those who were on the ground since October, mm -hmm. there is something that uh, has been shared and. I guess I'm trying to flesh it out into a certain extent first in this format and at some point when my brain is functioning again, I'll try and write about it as well. Mm -hmm. But uh, is there anything that, uh, I don't know, anything we could have expanded upon, but like uh, my question wasn't good or uh, I don't know. Is there anything that you want, you want to, is there a final note that you want to end on? Yes, actually, it's funny, like, relax, not to, I, I feel like we covered out like so many intense things in such a short amount yeah. of time. But there is something I want to say, and it speaks to like us talking about this collective experience that we shared separately and together. Mm. And, uh, um, you know, and sort of can be spliced anywhere. So uh, a dear friend of mine, Mary Germanos, uh, made this film uh, about the labor movements um, 
of the 60s and 70s, Hone Bilibnin and the Ghandur factory uprising. And she also talks about, um, uh, sorry, the Ghandur factory worker strikes and the tobacco farmers uprising and sort of talks about like, you know, uh, you know, she made this like really beautiful kind of essay, uh, essayistic film about, um, you know, these, these labor movements and, and those early revolutions that, um, you know, and then afterwards were kind of like superseded by the civil war. I'm not going to say they led to the civil war. Anyway, I hope Mm -hmm. I'm doing the film justice, but the title of the film, which is taken from, sorry, like one of the things that her character says. So it's English translation is a feeling greater than love. Okay. I, I actually haven't told her this. Um, but it's, it just kept coming back to me that title. Uh, you know, a feeling greater than love the whole time that I was down there. Um, I mean, it remains something like I cannot, I cannot write about it or think about like those early days now without getting like really choked up, you know? Um, And, and it's very much like being in love in the sense that um, it, all the cliches become true, you know? Um, everything that you that everybody told you about you're like okay you hear about it whatever it's in theory but then you explain it and you're like oh my god it's true it, it does feel like lightning struck you it does feel like you know <laughs> the whole world is turned upside down like you know like even it imbues even cliche with meaning like even the emptiest turn of phrase it like loads it with meaning you know and um and I just keep thinking of that. Like, it's like, of course, so there's love that exists between you and another person. And it's, you know, and it's this like transformative thing. And it, it you know, alters your contours and their contours and everything. And, you know, but to have that happen on this massive scale of like all these bodies and these people pressed together and this sense of like everybody being able to agree that, you know, whatever reality we want, it's not this one in which we're living. I think the problems start coming when everybody articulates what their version of utopia is. And then like, that's Mm -hmm. when people start arguing, but at least everybody is united in like, whatever we want to live is not this, like enough with this shit. And, um, and I just, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I want to say is like, it's just that, that idea of a feeling greater than love is something that, it was a title that I read and understood and watched the film and, and loved the film and, you know, all of these things. But then all of a sudden I got to have that experience. I got to know what, what that feeling greater than love is. And I feel so incredibly grateful for it. Like just, you know, if, if I like of all of the experiences that I have lived in my life, I think that I, I wouldn't trade this one for the world. Again, there's like no words adequate for this, but I'm just so mm-hmm. grateful that I like of, of the full range of human experiences that a person can have, you know, in a human body that I, I don't know that there's anything that transcends this, you know? That's a wonderful way of ending it, actually. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. This was really, I really enjoyed this, Joey, really. I did as well. Thanks a lot for your time.